0: ACS community, I am happy to join you today. Uh, This is Susanna Greer and I have with me my ACS colleague Joe Cotter, who many of you know. Joining us as well um, is Dr. Ellie Van Allen. And Ellie was an ACS postdoc from 2013 to 2016. He actually ended his grant early because he was promoted to an assistant professor and he has had a fantastic few years since those, since that ACS funding. He's uh, currently an associate member at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard and an assistant professor at um, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School. So thanks for joining us, LA. How are you?
1: Thanks for having me. Well, uh, I really appreciate you giving the chance to chat with you guys.
0: Absolutely. I, uh, we're thrilled to have you. I've got so many things I want to ask you about. Um, So for those of you who are not fortunate, like uh, Joe and myself to have a moment to chat with Ellie, um, you may not have cyber stalked him like I have, but I've I've done my (laughs) research and um, your field is so interesting. So just to share with our ACS community, um, Ellie's research is in computational cancer genomics. Um, It's a fascinating field right now that's taken off uh, so much Um, and so I want to I think I want to start with some questions not about computational cancer genomics. I think we'll round out to that, but I just want to I want to start um, just asking. You haven't been a PI for that long, um, right? Joe and I did look look online a good bit and. Uh, based on pictures of your lab, I mean, it is a uh, robust group that you are <laughs> running. right? I mean, these are there are lots of them. Um, they are multi-ethnic, racial, and gender. I mean, it's, it's an impressive group. And so because Appreciate of how it. productive you are, yeah, absolutely. Um, It's pretty obvious you're a strong leader. Um, So I guess my first question is, because this is for um, Theory Lab, where we're all about driving collaboration. Is there anything you could share about how you run this group um, that maybe helps to helps you when you are thinking about collaborating with other scientists?
1: Absolutely. Well, again, I appreciate the kind words, and I, I wish I could say, you know, going into this that I truly had a conscious, you know, intentional. Path, you know, plan of of how this was, I was going to do this, and I, I definitely I knew from day one. Um, but I think you know that wouldn't be true. Uh, but also, I think you know uh, what you're we describing really sort of highlights. I think what are some of the core principles of our group and why perhaps we've been able to grow in the way we have. And, uh, because our, our yes, because in a lot of respects, these core principles are are centered around a few very basic things. Um, all of our projects are team science projects. And that team could be, you know, obviously with external collaborators or whatnot, or that could be projects that are within the group. Um, But for every one of them, you know, we're not – I'd say in a, in a traditional academic environment where there's you know a single postdoc who does one project and they do it all themselves, sure. that's not really how we work. Um, we work in, in small teams that work on projects together, and it may be that one person takes the lead in one part of that project and another person takes the lead in another part, but you know, the 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 magic happens, so to speak, when when they all work together on things. And, oh
0: my gosh, you're so right. And I guess I just want—I know people are going to want to know because team science is truly, I mean, it's the way of the future. But the one of the problems, especially when you're a PI, is—and um, this is in the weeds a little bit—but how do you deal with issues around authorship when you have team science? What are your thoughts? Of on course,
1: that? yeah. You know, I think that's that's where um, things can get can get challenging. And look, we've all been there. But I think the the, from you know part of the the goal with our group is really to sort of recruit people who are who are willing to sort of check their egos in some respects and recognize that there's there's value in, in sort of a team sized approach and that when when you actually take take a step back and think about the efforts um, everyone wins because one person might you know, well, one we were very, were very um, generous with sharing, you know, co-first or co-senior authorship credit mm-hmm. because, again, usually it's it's deserved, right? I mean, because uh, people work in teams, so it's always it always works that well. And in that way, pe- you know, people, um, uh, people, you know, can actually be more productive than they might have otherwise been. Um, but the other thing is that you know, again, I think people in our group are very willing to sort of put that traditional academic metric aside because we're we're trying to just sort of avoid that entirely because that's just not something that we, you know, really interested in. You know, I think the, um, because a lot of us come from other fields Mm -hmm. uh, where that's not really something we completely understand as like a thing. Uh, So, when when we sit down and try to explain this to somebody who may not be familiar with it, they might look at it and say, well, that's ridiculous anyway, so who cares, and let's just get I love work it. Done. I love it. Joe, I, th-
0: I think we need to steal it. We need an ACS tagline that's, we're recruiting ego checkers. Um, <laughs> I think that would be wonderful. Uh, so, Ellie, you must also use that same kind of thought process when you're seeking – I mean, you said a lot of your collaborations or your work in your lab may involve a – Multiple people within your group, but also you may pull in or often pull in people from outside. So you must have kind of those same principles at play there that we all need to work well together.
1: Absolutely. And I think that, and what people recognize is that, you know, and I, I actually give a lot of credit to my, my academic mentor, Levi Garraway. It was a sort of a lot of respect to his ethos as well. You know, I mean, it may be that on paper number one, you know, he's last and another person is co last with him but the next paper they flip and then what you create in that environment is that you know rather than having one one project and then you never talk to each other again you have 10 projects and you know you and it becomes a really fruitful collaboration that with shared credit across the board over time And I think yeah. it's sometimes it's it's the overtime part of it that I think sometimes people may miss in the heat of the moment about any one effort but it's actually those are sort of the the, the key junctures where you you see people who they are and you recognize who are the people that are are aware that uh, you know there's more to it than just one study, and, and again, I will say, of course, that this is all assumes that people are are actually doing the work. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like if there is a situation where you know somebody is not doing anything, that's a different that's a whole that's a, that's a you know different conversation. But you know, generally speaking, if you know people are, do the work and are willing to work together, the the, the, the long-term play creates a situation where every um, where, where everyone wins and everyone wins over time and they keep winning you know and that's and that's the ideal setup
0: I think it's great I mean so you're looking for hard workers who are ego checkers who can take a step back and look at the big picture and, and the overall goal I mean obviously we all have to make those marks to Um, kind of accelerate your career and uh, with an eye towards promotion or graduation or or finishing that postdoc or wherever it is. But I think it's it's certainly a fantastic lesson for all of us to to think about the big picture, not only in what you're doing and why it's so critical, but in how you're doing it. So thank you. All right, so I have... um, also, as a part of my stalking you a little bit, I was really fascinated to learn um, kind of of your engagement in something that's actually really pretty new, unfortunately, but fortunate that it's happened for the oncology community, and that's um, around patient-driven um, I think you, you may have said it, liberation of data, which I love. So I'd, I'd love to hear about your thoughts on that and, and your sure. involvement in the Metastatic Prostate Cancer Project because sure. I think a lot of our listeners won't, won't have heard a lot about it.
1: Absolutely. So I'll sort of break that up into two things. So okay. first, patient-driven research, um, and that's where the Metastatic Prostate Cancer Project falls into, um, mm-hmm. is the idea that rather than expect patients to have to come, specifically cancer patients, to have to come to one of a very select few academic cancer centers around the country to be able to participate in any kind of research, you know, expect them to walk into a Dana-Farber or a Memorial Memorial Sloan Kettering or wherever. Um, We can instead now bring the research project to the patient Mm -hmm. at their doorstep and engage with them in ways using technology and social media that we could not have done previously. Um, And the goal of these projects is to, in so doing, create a mechanism to tap into a much larger set of patients, the vast majority of whom will never step foot into an academic medical center where these kinds of research projects traditionally occur um, and engage with research, Make patients at the center of these projects. And so the Metastatic Prostate Cancer Project is one of them as under, uh, under the ones that we are running through the Broad Institute under this Count Me In umbrella, um, which was right. recently announced and described um, uh, in various lay press and with a website, uh, I believe it's jointcountmein.org. And our, our our website is mpcproject.org, M org, in Mary, uh, Metastatic Prostate Cancer Project, um, and here we we are. We've basically we've created a, a website and a mechanism for patients anywhere around the country or and in Canada to, to go to the website mpcproject.org, click the Count Me In button, answer a very a few very basic questions, and then mm-hmm. from there it initiates this process whereby we ship a saliva kit to their door. We access their medical records and their tumor samples for genetic profiling. Um, we will also actually mail. Um, a blood biopsy kit to the patient, so they can bring it to their their next lab draw and provide us with a blood sample, uh, so that oh, we can study the tumor the tumor we can study the tumor DNA that 's shed into the blood yeah. and what 's really been exciting about this project is this is a this, prostate cancer is a disease that, you know, guys don't like to talk about. There's no, there's not a very large social media footprint. Um, it took us for a large academic project of a similar flavor, uh, you know, many years to recruit roughly 400 or so men with quality data who have mm-hmm. advanced prostate cancer for research. You know, with this project has been open for about, you know, let's say six to nine months and we're already approaching 600 guys who have signed oh, up. And, and that may not seem like a lot of patients, um, but again, um, it, it took us only a few months to basically over oh you know, sort of do more than what's in a traditional academic right. program would have taken years and we've barely gotten started and we're barely we've barely begun socializing this effort um, in a disease that inherently is not socialized Yeah,
0: I was going to say the part that's so interesting to me is that it elevates the expectation. For right. patients to participate, but also for scientists and clinicians to to drive this type of project I mean <laughs> prostate cancer is is critically important, but we have about twenty others um, that we would love to to really drive this kind of interaction so um, exactly really-
1: and this is and and again, this is the metastatic prostate cancer project is one of a number of yeah. such projects under our yeah. county umbrella, and the goal here of course is you know, this we're we, are, we are still in the experimentation phase. What's going to work for disease A and B and C? But, sure. you know, in principle, the goal is, is to do this for everyone. Um, and that actually comes to the second part of what you were asking about data liberation. So yeah. just as we are interested in generating new data, so generating genomics, for instance, from these patients, but maybe do other kinds of data as well so that we can discover and learn and, and accelerate, you know, new treatments and whatnot, uh, we do recognize that there is ample amounts of existing data that... that you know, live in the clinical environments, whether it's clinical data, genomic data, other kinds of stuff. And, you know, we recognize that with, you know, current HIPAA laws, the patient actually has the right to their own data in every form computable and imaginable. And uh, we are in the process now of experimenting with – mechanisms to actually empower patients to liberate their data and access it in ways that they don't normally don't even recognize they even have a lawful right to Mm -hmm. Um, and in so doing hope that we can create an ecosystem where they may also then subsequently want to donate that data for further research Um, this is a much more of a work in progress um, for which we have some stuff cooking it's a much hard it's actually a much harder problem because the the, the procedures to actually liberate the data, even with a law on your side, are, are very much mm-hmm. up in the air, um, but it's something we're very interested in doing. And w- again, here, the patient is at the center of all of this. They have all the power, and they have all the, the ability to actually make this happen if they want to.
0: So I have a question. If, um, if if you run into patients that have reservations about this, what are their reservations? Is it...
1: So yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's numerous ones. I think patients sometimes... So, for instance, on the the research side, so for the Count Me In projects, currently this is purely a research project. We do not have mechanisms to return individualized results, so patients will ask, you know, what's in it for me, and I think that's a very fair uh, concern. We're, we're We're building out processes to try to work around that and actually be able to deliver clinical data back to patients, but that's going to take some time. Um, some patients will express concerns about privacy, which is understandable in the genomics era. You know, the, the whole notion of privacy is sort of becoming a, a very nebulous topic for which there's not necessarily very clear answers or guidance on what that even means anymore, but that's something that people are understandably concerned about. Um, I think the, the hardest problem, for, our, for instance, for our prostate cancer project is, you know, the, the, it's oftentimes involves you know, folks who are not very, tech savvy or not very familiar or comfortable with using technology in this kind of a way. And mm-hmm. so overcoming that barrier is, is, is something we're working on trying to work through. Um, but, uh, but it's a very fair and, and reasonable complication to sort of making these kinds of efforts happen.
0: Well, I mean, that drives a really um, kind of a nice segue, too, because I couldn't let you get off the phone without at least asking you a little bit about computational oncology. Um, (laughs) You guys had a fantastic Nature Genetics paper uh, really recently. I'm an immunologist, so it gets right to my heart. uh, Thinking about cancer immunotherapy. Beautiful work. Um, So if you one of the things that we struggle with um, whether it's patients who maybe um, don't have the the access to data or scientists like myself who um, thinking about big data is a challenge I'd love just for you to comment um, two comments maybe one on kind of the the field of cancer immunotherapy in general and how we can use uh, computational oncology to better understand um, the massive amount of data that's out there and is somewhat um, prohibitive, I think, um, of us making real or, or having a real solid understanding of where to move in the field. And then also, what do you think about the field of computational oncology in general? Where are you going and what are you most excited about? I think Joe and I'd really like to know that.
1: Sure, so I maybe mean, I'll jump in on the first question uh, to okay. start. So on cancer immunotherapy and genomics and, and sort of quote, unquote, big data. Um, so the reason we got interested in this question is based off of, again, clinical experience that I and many others had over the course of this decade, treating patients increasingly with these drugs and seeing dramatic responses in, in, in cancer types that we historically would never imagine seeing. Uh, patients with metastatic mm-hmm. bladder cancer, which is a often fatal within months kind of disease, you know, folks who are alive three, four, five years later. This is not, we're not used to this (laughs) as as, as clinical oncologists. So there's a very strong appeal to try to understand why this happens, because maybe if we can figure that out, um, we can actually expand the number of patients who can benefit. And with cancer immunotherapy, you know, so which has obviously revolutionized the field and it's the source of Nobel Prizes, um, there remains an open questions as to sort of which patients, why does it work in some patients and not others? Um, and a challenge to studying that traditionally has been that you know, it's been always unclear whether we have the right model systems to study that and sort of using traditional techniques. Um, But this is, I think, where there's a huge opportunity for folks like myself and the fields that we're in, because in this space, you know, the patient can become our model system because mm-hmm. so many patients are getting these drugs. And we can now access their samples and generate large amounts of data, omics, clinical, and otherwise, and start to put this puzzle together using human data. Um, that's and that's what we try to it. do. And, and that's what we tried to do with that first pass, with our, that recent nature genetics paper. And I think it was we found some interesting things, but we'll be f- very transparent and honest that you know nothing we found was robust enough statistically for us to feel like we we solved any problems.
0: Oh, yeah, but I, I was going to say I came away thinking, oh my God, this is even more complicated than we ever thought. <laughs> right? I mean, it's the way we come away from right. I think most of those papers right now.
1: Right, kind of but I think one step but, forward, but, one
0: step back. But
1: exactly, but I think you know, but. You know in in sort of what we what we inferred from that data set, we can imagine getting to those answers you know sooner than we might think um, and it's simply a matter of connecting clinical observations with appropriately profiled human data and Immersing that into the cancer immunotherapy, cancer biology world, and I think that that's that actually speaks to the heart of more generally what our lab and our group is interested in, which is actually that intersection of clinical oncology, computational biology, and, and you know, genomics and molecular molecular oncology, and I think that's the, that sweet spot right in the middle of those three things is what we what we care about generally, um, and I and because you know we can now generate increasing amounts of data from patients across the all sorts of spectrums. Uh, the the uh, questions and opportunities are endless.
0: Ah, uh, that's just—it it makes you feel like—and maybe in a year or in five years, for sure, we'll be in a very different place. I guess that's that's my, my takeaway is we just need to sit tight and um, continue, just just push on.
1: Yeah, you know, I I when I started as a as a postdoctoral fellow in Levi's lab, we would we would get a whole exome from one cancer patient and mm-hmm. and would spend a lot of time trying to dive into that one patient because that at the time was, you know, quote-unquote big data. Um, here we are just a few years later, and we have thousands, tens of thousands of, of such data sets um, and increasingly complex other data being paired with it. Um, and in addition, technology keeps advancing, so we're, we've gone from studying exomes to genomes, we've gone from studying bulk tumor samples to single cells. Um, What we can do now compared to even just two, three, four years ago is, is profoundly more advanced, and I think with that creates all sorts of exciting opportunities for, in essence, computer nerds who somehow tripped into this field uh, to, to really take a swing at, at, at solving some of these problems, especially, and we didn't even get to this much, but especially when you think about the parallel advances in machine learning and artificial yeah. intelligence and how that can actually inform how we think about these data. So it's a, it's a, pretty, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty exciting time. <laughs> and I think to go back to your first question, so how, do, how has the group gotten big and, and with all sorts of interesting people from different disciplines? I think it's, it's at the heart of what we do. It, it is an interdisciplinary science. So we'll have, you know, medical oncology fellows who's never written a line of code their life before, sitting next to, you know, PhDs in, with artificial intelligence backgrounds who don't know the first thing about clinical medicine. And you sit those two people together for, you know, I had a couple of those folks start with those exact, you know, backgrounds. I sat them next to each other for the first three months, and you know, it's amazing what happens when, when those folks start talking to each other. And I think that's the uh, that's that's at the heart of what we're trying to do.
0: Ah, well, I think that that's a great place for us to end, is um, hearing about your special sauce of the ego checkers and those <laughs> who were just willing to put it aside for the big picture. Um, so Actually, I, me, I can't. Can go I ahead, check Joe? one thing, Susanna? Of course. Maybe it was a great place to end, but I wonder if we could give the last word to a hypothetical cancer patient. Let's say you know, are a cancer survivor who's who's wondering, like, why the heck is ACS funding computational oncology research? What is that? And why do <laughs> yeah. I, like, if I'm a cancer patient, why is that, what is, how does that matter to me?
1: So I'll be honest with that two ways. Uh, so, so first, how does it matter to you uh, as a cancer patient? Um, we think increasingly that the opportunity for discovery that could have an immediate clinical impact, impact meaning new drugs, or new ways of figuring out which patients should get existing drugs or figuring out which patients really need to be screened and watched carefully because they might be at risk of getting cancers um, is really at the heart of what we're trying to do. And we have, we've now clear evidence that we've actually made a lot of success in that regard. You know, we have, I, I can point to work that we've been a part of. That's that has already led, led to drugs or drug combinations that are being tested in the clinic. That has led to new ways of doing genetic testing in patient populations we never would have expected needed it, but actually need it. Um, and and those things have had you know profound impact. So so that in and of itself can all be walked back to computational oncology and sort of the discoveries made at this new science. To answer the question another way, um, so. I, again, I'm not. I don't think I have a very typical background as a as a physician scientist studying cancer uh, because of my of a computer science interest and background, and in one's career, sort of that transition from sort of mid training to actually getting your first faculty job is the most sensitive part of a career, and usually where folks who try to pursue non traditional, you know, perhaps you can say sort of crazy things. <laughs> um, end up falling through the cracks in in traditional academia because traditional funding mechanisms don't understand um, how to take risks for those kinds of people. And that's exactly, frankly, where I fell into. I would would tell people what I was interested in, and the feedback I would receive was often either I don't get it or this is never going to work. You either need to pipette or you need to write clinical trials. There is nothing in between. Um, And so, in fact, my... ACS, postdoctoral fellowship, was the bridge between my training and my first faculty job. And I, and I would truly, I would not be here telling you guys about all this cool stuff we're doing um, were it not for that, that bridge and that funding at that critical time in my career. So um, both as sort of the immediate demonstrable evidence of like, here are new drugs, here are new treatments, here are new um, genetic testing for patients level, and the Here's a way that this funding actually filled a gap for, a, for a very sensitive time in one's academic career perspective. Um, it, it plays a huge role.
0: Well, Joe is right. That is a much better place to end. <laughs> and LA, I'll say, I mean, we're just so we are so fortunate that we found you and that you found your sweet spot between pipetting and the clinic. Because um, I think it's obvious to all of us that you fill a gap. Um, and and well, we're grateful. Well, thank
1: you. And, I appreciate it. Thank you. Truly, thank you. Thank the American Cancer Society. We would not be able to do this without without your support. So, uh, well, we we really appreciate it.
0: All right. We'll keep up the good work and we'll be in touch. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye.